Oh, dude, this is going to be such a time saver. I cannot wait. Where do I push this? I don't. Um, the just green thing. Push, push the green arrow. What did tell you? Here, push <laughs> this. Here, here. Good. I don't remember. Just push it. Hello. This is Chad Greg, or Chad G for short. And this is Chad Patrick, or Chad P. And together we are. Chad, Chad GP. GP. It has been a very busy time. How about at your end? Oh yes, so much family things has been transpiring during this time of Accessing NASA reference stack Northern Hemispheric Summer Solstice I also greatly enjoyed seeing you for our uproarious and meaningful interpersonal camaraderie at my house Ha 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 Attempting executive call, humorous response number 14, API request failed I assume you are getting ready for the start of the new academic year at your post-secondary institution Latitude 35.904613 Longitude minus 79.046761 very busy as usual, but what really makes me feel full of things one might label as positive emotions is the start of Season 5 of the podcast Quantitude, which is known for its playful blend of statistical and academic information conveyed with approachable, albeit overlong, personal anecdotes and dated song and movie clips that borderline on copyright infringement. You make me feel very excited in my insides to commence once again. As you do me, Greg. Thank you, my friend. Do me, Greg. Do Approaching me, recursion Greg. limit. Do me, Greg. Stack do overflow. Me, Greg. Do me, Greg. Do me, What the Greg. hell? Do me, Greg. Do me, Greg. Uh, stop, okay. stop, 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 stop. What the hell was that? <laughs> okay. Maybe there are some glitches here Quinn that we need to work out. We wouldn't have to record any episodes this season. <laughs> How much did you pay him to do this? <laughs> we have identified the problem. Just roll the intro. Yeah, fine. Welcome. My name is Patrick Curran, and along with my friend Greg the Rock Hancock, we make up Quantitude. We are a podcast dedicated to all things quantitative, ranging from the relevant to the completely irrelevant. In this week's episode, our first for Season 5, Greg and I explore the very cool world of Receiver Operating Characteristic, or Rock Curves. What they are, how they work, and why we can give partial thanks to Winston Churchill for their existence. Along the way, we also discuss... Advent calendars, lasagna for eight, honey nut Cheerios, radio detection and ranging, flock of seagulls, broken pun promises, Dwayne Johnson, the whale petting machine, embassy suites, poison ivy and kudzu, sexy hulk, smoldering intensity, spitfires and F-14s, drunken punches, and where's Waldo? We hope you enjoy this week's episode. Welcome back, my friend. Nice to see you. Have you moved Quinn out of the house yet? We're about to do that. <laughs> Whereas Goldie is a ball of anxiety about having a kid moving out, I pretty much have an advent calendar where I'm tearing off a page each day. <laughs> There's a little chocolate thing behind the door. That's exactly right. Greg and I are going through a developmental period. His son Quinn is heading to college, and I put both my kids. Oof. They went last week. I would like the minutes to reflect that I am not happy about that. For however hard it is for me, I still have one kid left in the house, and you went from full house all the way down to nothing. That really has to be hard. It is. And you know the microcosm for me is I do all the cooking at home. And even when we had a full house, I cooked too much food. Uh -huh. Now it's like a lasagna for eight. Mm -hmm. And my wife and I sit at the table and it's like some old timey movie with the two people sitting at opposite ends of this long banquet table. Uh-huh. For you, it might be drastic is instead of going to your six stores, you just go to your three stores. No, the truth is that Quint pretty much only eats Honey Nut Cheerios. So I don't he think does. I have been and there are multiple <laughs> boxes on the shelf. <laughs> One plus side is it's increased my time that I sit in the pitch black on my back deck. With your Kindle or whatever With it is you... With my Kindle, yeah. I don't know if we've mentioned this before, but Patrick sends me screenshots of whatever he's reading. <laughs> And by screenshot, I mean he takes his phone, takes a picture of his Kindle, and then texts it to me. And for however much we busted on our moms for cutting out newspaper clippings, this is exactly the same thing as our mom sending us newspaper clippings. How else am I supposed to get it, right? The Kindle, it's just this really basic paper white. 
I can't email from it. Whatever. I am almost done with the second volume of the five-volume set of Winston Churchill's memoirs of World War II. Right. I finished The Gathering Storm, and I'm almost done now with Their Finest Hour. And then there are three more. And just to put this in context, these are like thousand page books apiece. (laughs) He is such a remarkable writer that I see a paragraph and he has a turn of a phrase or he has a funny thing. And I want to share it with you. And I'm holding the Kindle and there's no other way. We shall defend our island, whatever the cost may be. We shall never surrender! What just happened? They mobilized the English language and sent it into battle. When he became prime minister, he formed a ministry of statistics, and his line was he had utter confidence that they would only deal in realities. And I love that line. Yeah. Not politics, not fears, not anxieties. His department of statistics dealt in realities. Because that's what we do. Because that's what we aspire to do. Okay. It kind of pivots into what we're going to talk about today, because this is a problem that goes back millennia. A really good example comes out of 1939-1940 in Britain during this whole period. That is the development of radar. Yeah. In Britain, they really dedicated themselves to developing radar because they had to. It was survival. It was an existential crisis. Germany was sending the Luftwaffe on bombing raids, and they had to know where the planes were coming from so that they could scramble their fighter planes. But there were very few of them and the coast was very big. They had to know where to send the fighter squadrons because they didn't want to send them to where the planes were not, right? So a false alarm. Mm -hmm. But they also didn't want to miss a bomber flight coming in and not scramble the fighter planes. And so radar was a way of dealing with this. Radar is actually an acronym, radio detection and ranging, although it's just become a noun at this point of what radar is. And in very simplistic terms, you send out radio waves, they bounce off of things that are out there and come back to you. Through magic that is way above my pay grade, you're able to interpret these signals and determine not only position and distance, but velocity. Mm -hmm. So where are they? And how fast are they coming? What could possibly go wrong? (laughs) You send out a radio wave, it comes back. Of course, it's a bomber, unless it's a bird or a cloud (laughs) or a rain squall. Or it's not even your own radar signal. It's some ambient thing coming back at you. Yeah, You've got this thing called gain. Gain is kind of like the volume on an audio channel. You can put gain all the way to zero and you are 100% correct in not falsely identifying that a bomber is coming because you're not identifying anything is coming. That's right. As you turn up the gain your receiver becomes more and more sensitive to those signals coming back. You have gain up a little bit. Well, you're very unlikely to make a false positive, but you're also pretty likely to miss what's really out there. And so you keep turning it up, turning it up, turning it up. Pretty soon, you're not going to miss any bomber, but you also got a very nice flock of seagulls. What it brings you to is how do you balance where to set that gain where you are likely to identify a bomber squadron that is really there, but lower the probability that you're going to scramble a squadron of fighters to go shoot down some seagulls. Yeah. Which the seagulls don't like. Some people might think that (laughs) that's a good thing to do. Don't alienate the seagull people this early (laughs) in the season. We love seagulls. We love seagulls. So a couple of reactions to what you just said. One is, I like the idea of the gain knob, right? Where at one end, when you've got the gain all the way down, you don't get any noise at all, but you don't get any signal either. And when you turn the gain all the way up, you get all the signal, 
but you also get all the noise. So we're trying to find that place where we can put the gain, where we find just the right balance between signal and noise. The other thing that I want to say, this has to be so refreshing for you because every time you're about to drift into the whole war stuff, you pull back and <laughs> talk about the whale petting machine. Yeah. So for loyal listeners, I went on a long story about the whale petting machine because all of my examples involve war. <laughs> do you extend the whale petting or not? And do you miss a whale? And then I had an uncannily realistic reproduction of what a sad whale sounds like. What sound would the whale make if it's sad, Patrick? <laughs> uh, <laughs> I'm going to double down on this one. You have 80 bombers flying across the English Channel. You've got 25 <laughs> Spitfires that are sitting on the ground. You've got three readings on the radar, mm -hmm. and two are false and one is true. How do you probabilistically identify which ones to vector the fighters into when you might be wrong? And that brings us to the first acronym that I will not grouse like an old man. Oh. It's not a PIN number. It's just a PIN. <laughs> Personal identification number. It's a PIN. Uh -huh. It's not an ATM machine. It's just an ATM. What about an SEM model? Okay, we'll put that in the grumpy old man. <laughs> but what we're going to talk about today are rock curves. R-O-C curves. Mm. And... The C does not stand for curve. Nice. The receiver operating characteristic curves. And this came out of Britain in 1939, where they had this gain knob. Now, this is big for today's discussion. A knob that you turn is a quintessential continuous scale. You slowly turn it up, you slowly turn it down. What they were trying to desperately figure out was what is that ideal gain setting on an infinite number of possible settings that would balance the number of times that you're going to identify a true positive from a false positive. And what they called that at the time were the receiver operating characteristics of the signal and that is the rock curve. <laughs> For those of you who have been patiently listening so far, this episode is not a history lesson. The whole thing is not really about scrambling the jets. We have to do this all the time, though, right? Even though you and I are not fans of taking continuous information and dichotomizing it, the reality is that we have to make dichotomous decisions all the time based on continuous information. We have to decide whether or not there is enough of something or not enough of something to be able to, whether it's refer somebody for treatment, or to pronounce a particular medical condition as positive versus negative. The idea of taking this information and converting it into a go-no-go -no -go decision is something that we encounter quantitatively all the time. So all of this stuff that was developed when it absolutely needed to, when it was life-and-death situations, ports over really well to places where we have quantitative information that we have to be able to convert into the most efficient yes-no decisions. I took a while ago a set of items online to determine my comfort with risk in investing my retirement. Hmm. It was eight or ten items, and it was on an ordinal scale. And of course, you and me being who we are is I'm completely redesigning the scale as I'm taking it. I'm like, this is a double-barreled word. <laughs> this is horrible psychometrics. Based on that continuous score that I got, it said, we believe this is the optimal risk that your personality will tolerate for investing your retirement accounts. This is everywhere around us. And a lot of these issues came up all the way back <laughs> whenever it was, two seasons ago, maybe, when we had our COVID episode, where we tried to unpack everything in terms of sensitivity and specificity associated with, at that time, a COVID test. Very briefly, my family was in Denver at my brother's place on Christmas Eve. My kid, Annie, tested positive on a rapid test for COVID. Mm -hmm. We spent Christmas Eve in an embassy suite eating <laughs> the most amazing Indian food that I've had because it was the only restaurant open on Christmas Eve. Opening presents in the hallway, 50 feet away from each other's, we're doing that. <laughs> Everybody kept saying, well, the test is 93% accurate. Right. Annie got a 
positive result on the test. So there is a 93% likelihood they had COVID. Mm. And we spent 45 minutes hopefully convincing you that that's a horrible bastardization of probability. And that is not the probability that Annie had COVID. There's a very different probability. The 93% was the probability that Annie would have gotten a positive test if they had COVID, right. which I clarified in that episode. I didn't give a rat's ass about that probability. I <laughs> wanted the flipped probability, <laughs> yep. which is what is the probability Annie had COVID given they got a positive result on the test? And we argued in that episode, those are fundamentally different probabilities. Yeah, And indeed, the 93% accurate test, we spitballed that there was probably a 10% chance that Annie actually had COVID. At the core of everything that we talked about in the COVID episode, and really at the core of a lot of things that we're going to talk about today when we get to rock curves, is the idea of this two-by-two table, where on one side you have truth, right? Whether or not you have COVID, whether or not there are actually enemy planes there. And then what the test tells you, right? The test giving you a positive result or a negative result. So we have this two-by-two grid with a bunch of different cells. Now, things that we talked about in the COVID episode include these two very important concepts. One is specificity and the other is sensitivity. The sensitivity has to do with your true positive rate. So if someone has COVID, what is the probability that you say they have COVID? The test is sensitive to that. On the other hand, specificity is if someone doesn't have COVID, what's the chance that you say they don't have COVID? For our purposes in the rock episode, we're going to take that specificity and we're going to flip it and make it one minus specificity. Whereas specificity focuses on your true negative rate, when we take one minus that, what we're going to get is your false positive rate. Given that you don't have COVID, what's the chance that we accidentally say you do? A false positive. For the purposes of what we're about to get into, the idea of true positive and true negative are going to be really important concepts for the rock curve stuff that we're going to get into. With the COVID test that we talked about before, though, the thing that we mostly glossed over was how does it give you a positive versus a negative result to begin with? And I think the answer is that it's measuring some sort of antigen level. And at some point, someone decided to draw a line that if you have a certain amount of this antigen or higher, this is the result that the test is going to show you. And if you have less than that amount, it's going to show you a different result. So the question for our purposes today is going to be, how did it know where to draw that line? But here's the challenge. Well, it depends on what the downstream cost is. Mm. I have never accidentally touched poison ivy ever in my life. Do you know why? Because if it's green, I assume it's poison ivy. All right? I am 100% accurate in my identification of poison ivy. Now, everything is poison ivy to me. That's right. That's why we can't serve you a salad at our house. I will not go to a salad bar because uh-huh. it's bins and bins of poison ivy. We can make it where it's a good old hang them all and let God sort them out, right? Mm-hmm. Any image that I get on the radar, I'm going to scramble the fighter. Well, that's a horrible strategy because we're going to be squandering limited resources sources, and we're going to be chasing rain clouds and flocks of birds, what it becomes is this optimization problem. How do we identify the cut point on a continuous measure that balances the true positives and the false positives in a way that we believe is ideal given the downstream costs of making a correct decision and making an incorrect decision. And that's where the rock curve really comes out onto the stage. The way that I think about it is as you're turning the gain knob, whatever that represents, and that could mean going up and down the different possible scores that you get on a depression scale. It could mean going up and down the scale representing how much antigen you have, whatever it is your measure is. Imagine turning that knob And you've got this two by two table that goes click, 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 and just changes, right? The numbers change with every little rotation of the knob. And you're turning the dial, turning the dial, turning the dial until something becomes most favorable. So take us, let me say this differently. Are you ready to rock? Okay, folks. (laughs) (laughs) The look I got. Not a ton of planning goes into these episodes and... (laughs) 
We get on Zoom beforehand and we mostly complain and we grouse and we talk about kids these days. And then we spend about five minutes getting ready for the discussion that we're going to have. <laughs> The one thing that I requested half an hour ago when we got on was that there would be no puns. Because evidently, you can't work in this area without saying, are you ready to rock? Or we're going to look under the rock. Thank you for respecting my request that we have no puns. Well, I just figured for those about to rock... You promised me. I can't not do it. I just can't not do it. If you're going to force me to do this, then I get The Rock. Okay. <laughs> All right. You feel free to put in Dwayne The Rock Johnson. What can I say except you're welcome for the tides, the sun, the sky. On that note, we should probably start a little bit easy and not rock you like a hurricane. Picture an XY axis. X axis, we have one minus specificity. That is your false positive rate. Mm -hmm. On the Y axis, we have sensitivity. That is your true positive. So we're going to make a plot of true positive against false positive. Now, each scale runs from zero to one because these are probabilities. And we're going to drop in a 45 degree angle starting at the origin up to the one one point in the upper right hand corner. What that represents is that your measure has a 50-50 chance of correctly identifying an unknown condition. All right, so let's say that we have some cut point that we use. You randomly draw a person from each of the two groups. One has the condition and one that does not have the condition. The one who has the condition, there's a 50-50 chance they have a score that's higher than the person who does not have the condition. Now, that's fixed in space. That XY with the 45 degree. Now we bring our sample, we bring our measure, and we have this continuous measure of gain, right? And what that is, is where do we put the cut point? Do we put the cut point at zero, at one, at two, at three, at four, at five? We can picture in our mind's eye doing an infinite number of cut points. And at each cut point, we compute sensitivity, and we compute specificity, and we take one minus specificity, and we put a little point there. That's going to mark a curve that we hope deviates from that diagonal line because we want our screener device to have better properties than flipping a coin and just having random chance alone. And better properties mean that we really hope that whatever curve we are tracing out is going to be above that 45-degree line. Because of the way we have these plotted, where the x-axis represents the false positive rate and the y-axis represents the true positive rate, we hope that for whatever cut point we're doing, the true positive rate is higher than the false positive rate. So that would mean as we're turning the gain knob, trying these different cut points, we hope that we are tracing out some curve where things are above the 45-degree angle, indicating that whole space where the true positive rate is higher than the false positive rate. And we turn it from all the way at the lowest gain setting, which would be down in the lower left-hand corner where we're at zero, zero. So that lower left-hand corner would be if you just didn't identify anything as poison ivy. You went to the poison ivy <laughs> salad bar, <laughs> whatever. <laughs> mm. Which they have in North Carolina. It's right next to all-you-can-eat kudzu. Versus if you turn the gain all the way up and it takes you to that northeast corner, the upper right, that is where the behavior that you described would be, where you say everything is poison ivy. And that means that you are maximizing your true positives, where you're getting all the poison ivy right, but you're also maximizing your false positives. So again, we hope that we have this curve. Honestly, ideally, it wouldn't even be a curve. It would be something that scampers up the y-axis as close as possible. And then when it gets up into that northwest corner, it just goes along the top. That would be the best possible test, where it 
instantly maximizes the true positive rate and just hugs that maximum true positive rate. Of course, that's not really going to happen. And so we get some curve that's traced out like some kind of arc that ideally hovers above that 45 degree line. I just love the visualization because you can trace along this line. You know what it is, Greg? Is it a sexy Hulk, rage Hulk kind of thing? I put the brains and the brawn together. And now look at me. Best of both worlds. <laughs> Imagine you had a zero to 10 poison ivy test. Mm -hmm. If you put the cut point at zero, you can calculate the false positive and the true positive. Then you calculate it for one. Then you calculate it for two. Mm -hmm. And you alluded to this earlier where you have the two by two table that itself is changing yeah. across the continuum. Now, I could rage hulk it where I compute the true positive and false positive rate at every possible value of the cutoff. But we can also sexy hulk it and say, wait, if we believe this is a continuous measure, we can look at a continuous function across an infinite number of values of the screening device and try trace that curve. The worst possible thing is that 45 degree angle because it's random. The best is it just goes straight up the y-axis and sits at the 1.0 for true positive and everybody who has it gets it and then it works its way across and that's the perfect test. Like everything we do, we want to fall in between those two. Or we don't want it. We would like the perfect test, but we typically are going to fall in between those two. Now, why don't we get a perfect test? Here's another picture in your mind's eye. Remember, we have two groups. We have those who have COVID and those who do not have COVID. Within each of those two groups is a univariate continuous distribution of antigen levels. Mm. All right, let's pretend it's normal. So we have antigen levels in people who do not have COVID. We have antigen levels in people who do have COVID. In the vast majority of cases, whether it be antigen levels or the Hancock toxic masculinity <laughs> test or whatever it is that we have, our poison ivy test, those distributions are going to overlap. Mm -hmm. On average, people who do not have the condition are going to be lower on the scale. Those who do have the condition are going to be higher on the scale. But it's that overlap yep. that is the poke in the psychometric eye, which is I have the condition, you do not have the condition, but we both have a score of 10. That's where we try to balance how do we make a probabilistic inference when there is some degree of overlap in these distributions. Instead of sexy Hulk, can it be sexy the rock? This one time. Okay. <laughs> Strength, fearless, climbing, speed, smoldering intensity. What just happened? Um, you just smoldered. Okay. <laughs> now, I realize this falls into if you give a mouse a cookie. Yes. All right, for any of you who have kids, as you know this book by heart, uh -huh. is if you give a mouse a cookie, they're going to want a glass of milk. If you give a mouse a glass of milk, they're going to want, I don't know, a cigarette? I don't know. <laughs> what I forget the book now. It's, My kids are older. A, the cookie is a gateway drug in that story. I will give you the rock on this one instance, as long as you promise uh -huh. to not play this out any further during the episode. No. Okay, I'll see what I can do. So the thing about this picture that you are describing... It has not made any decisions. This is a picture of all possible decisions. And sometimes we're dealing with something that is a scale like from 1 to 10. And so in that case, our cut points are things like, what if it's between 0 and 1, between 1 and 2, between... And so we get a curve that is a little bit jaggedy. But other times it's something that is much more continuous, so much so that it makes a lot of sense, like Patrick described, to fit it with a particular function. But either way, this is a beautiful picture of the possibilities, but it hasn't yet translated into a decision. So a couple of things that we we can get off of this particular curve. One is we might decide that this is a horrible test to use, that there's no great way to make a decision based on this. And there are diagnostics for that. But if there is a way, then the question will turn into, okay, you got to pick a point. You got to know when you're going to scramble the jets. You got to know when you're going to tell someone they have COVID. How can we use this to make a decision as to what an optimal cut point is? So why don't we take those in two parts? The first one is, if you're looking at this picture, how can you quantitatively characterize whether or not this diagnostic measure is even a good measure for making decisions? 
This brings us to another example where you owe your high school calc teacher an apology. <laughs> right. Because it was 1130 at night. You were at your kitchen table. You were saying, when in my life am I ever going to have to compute the area under a curve? Which brings us to the AUC, which is area under the curve. I love the visualization of it. I love visualizations in any of what we do. And as you said, up to this point, we don't have any numerical values. We don't have any estimates of certainty or uncertainty. Mm -hmm. And indeed, we haven't said, based on this, this is where I think we should put the cut point. So let's slap a numerical value on it. That 45-degree line, the area under that curve, and the curve is a line, is 0.5. Yeah. When you do a triangle down to the x-axis, there is a 50% chance that a randomly drawn person from the diagnosed group is going to have a higher score than a randomly drawn person from the non-diagnosed group. So those two univariate distributions I described, they're sitting right on top of each other. Mm -hmm. Now, as you start to shift those distributions apart horizontally, and that curve on the rock curve starts to move toward the upper left corner of the xy axis well the area under the curve starts to increase it might go to 0.6 it might go to 0.7 it might go to 0.8 so let's say that we have an area under the curve is now 0.8 what that means is if we randomly draw someone from the diagnosed group the probability is 0.8 that they have a higher score than a randomly drawn person from the non-diagnosed group. So this is a numerical estimate of the discrimination of the test. Remember, we're just dealing with a square, a one-by-one one square. So the whole area of the square is one. That just puts us so beautifully in this world of intuitive probability. And as Patrick said, that diagonal line that you have has an area under it that's just half of that unit square. So 0.5, beautiful. And as your rock curve creeps up toward that northwest corner, it starts filling up with more area under it, more area, more area, until the best it could possibly be, which it will never be, would be, as we described, climbing up that y-axis and then sneaking across the x-axis, which would have the area under it of the full one unit of the unit square. So the maximum it could ever be is one. The, <laughs> the worst it could be would be zero, but that would be pretty sad. I think we really think about our baseline as being that diagonal, which has half. So between a half and one, those are the areas where we start to judge whether or not this instrument has diagnostic value. You will never get an area under the curve 1.0, as Greg says, but it's not preposterous. What that mm -hmm. means is those two univariate distributions don't overlap at all. Right. And if you dropped a cut point of 10 and everyone in the non-diagnosed group had below 10 yeah. and everyone in the diagnosed group had above 10, you would have 100% sorting accuracy in the discrimination between those two groups. Those two distributions are rarely, if ever, non-overlapping. Mm -hmm. And so you're going to fall in that area between the 45-degree line and the upper northwest corner, which then begs begs the question, well, how high is high enough? <laughs> yeah, it's like so many things in statistics. There's so much work put in on the front end at describing the statistics that we get out. And then someone just kind of phones it in qualitatively at the end. That happens with fit indices and structural equation modeling. And it happens here too, right? That if you get an AUC area under the curve that's around 0.9, we might say something like it's high accuracy or, <laughs> right? And then it comes down between maybe 0.7 and 0.9. We'd say that's moderate and 0.5 to 0.7 low or some variation on that based on what? I don't know, based on some labels that someone put on there from some particular discipline. But in general, values up closer to 0.9 and 1 are great, and values closer to 0.5 suck, and you can attach whatever descriptors you want along the way. And to complicate things further, mm -hmm. it depends. Yeah. It depends on the downstream cost of saying someone has a condition or not. I don't know if it ever made post-processing, but I told a story at one point. There's a guy who I'm good friends with in the neighborhood who used to fly F-14s <laughs> off of aircraft carriers and completely emasculated me <laughs> at a 
<laughs> neighborhood picnic by telling this story after I had proudly told how I jog every other day and he like actually is Top Gun. <laughs> he told this wonderful story. There was a warning light that would come on in the jet and it almost was always a false alarm. But if it wasn't, your plane exploded. <laughs> he had a really funny line where he said, I've flown for 25 years and they really encourage you to not have your plane blow up. <laughs> but the point is, whenever that came on, all the pilots knew it was probably a false alarm, but they had to respond as if it wasn't because it was such a high cost. Mm -hmm. Hi. If you were wondering, as I was, if this is just another one of the imaginary friends that Patrick has in his head, stick around after the episode so you can hear the actual pilot himself, Barry, tell the story. So this then scales down to what we do, which is, well, if you're just trying to triage somebody, do they need some support in math? What retirement package are they going to pick? You may have a different optimal value that you would select or discrimination that you would want than if you're doing a high stakes medical test mm -hmm. that would be say highly invasive some kind of biopsy that you would do you might well choose a different criterion depending upon what are the cost and benefits of a true positive from a false positive sometimes people will say if that upper left corner is an ideal where you are maximizing your true positive and minimizing your false positive, one way to decide where the best spot is, the sweet spot is, irrespective of cost, could be something as basic as a Euclidean distance or squared Euclidean distance. What point on your rock curve is closest to that upper left-hand corner? Another way is literally just to go through all of the vertical slices that you could put into your picture and ask, where is the biggest gap between your 45-degree line where the false positive and true positive are equal to each other and the place on your rock curve. That's where your true positive rate is maximally higher than your false positive rate. And to choose that particular place as your cutoff. Could I drunkenly punch you in the face? Oh, my first season five drunken punch <laughs> in the face, please. This is going to be maybe a right, left, right combination. Oh, I'm going to start with the right coming in as a jab just to get your attention. Let's say you get an area under the curve of 0.823. Okay. It's exactly 0.823 uh, on your sample uh, of 120. Uh, yeah. I remember a lecture years and years ago where somebody prattled on about a standard error <laughs> and some hocus pocus on a confidence interval. Don't you got a hankering to incorporate that magical thinking here? Yeah, everything we've been talking about has been completely descriptive. Without unpacking all of that, you are absolutely right. Whether we're talking about the AUC, right, the area under the curve, there's a confidence interval around that. Whether we're talking about the specific levels where the true positive rate exceeds the false positive rate. All of the inferential horsepower that we need overlays on this stuff. And you're right, we haven't been talking about that. Absolutely. And all the material you read on this, every single paper talks about standard errors and confidence intervals and uncertainty. Absolutely. I think there's a bit of a siren song of knowing the letter of the law in uncertainty, but in the spirit of the law, we put our finger on the curve and that's the truth as God sees it. So we have to be very careful. So I got your attention with the quick jab. <laughs> the jab yeah. Now I'm going to lead with the hip on my left roundhouse. So your gain knob is perfectly reliable. So we have the Hancock toxic masculinity screener <laughs> device. But that itself is characterized by reliability and validity. Yeah. The outcome Sometimes it's called the gold standard. Yeah. Whether you have the condition or do not have the condition is characterized by reliability and validity, and it has its own specificity and sensitivity. All of that is baked into this as well. That's right. If you're talking about the COVID test and we want to know about the, quote, accuracy of the COVID test, that depends on us knowing whether you actually, truly, in God's eyes, have COVID. And how did we know that? What information led to that? If we're diagnosing a tumor, right, whether or not something is malignant or benign, we need to have the truth in order to be able to diagnose this. And a lot of times, the truth itself is fuzzy. I want the truth! You can't have 
handle the truth. What does it mean if we're using a cutoff on a depression scale to say someone truly has depression? Is there some gold standard where we know that you have depression? So aiming for these standards is often only as good as the standard and then only as good as the reliability and validity of the instrument that we're using to try to see if we're meeting that particular standard. So there is so much fuzz in all of these things that we look at this beautiful curve and we go, oh my gosh, look at that. That is my test. No, that is a snapshot and there's all kinds of fuzz around that. The reliability of the screener keeps me awake more than the validity of the diagnosis. Yeah. Everything you said is exactly right. But more often than not, whether you have COVID or not, in the clinical trials, they do blood antigen tests. In depression trials, they do full face-to-face diagnostic assessments. But imagine that you have a 10 or 12 item screener that has a reliability of 0.8, which would be pretty typical in the kind of work that we do. And you say, if I use a cut point of a score of 10, that will get this rate of true positives and this rate of false positives. But there's an entire confidence interval around that value of 10. Given all of that, how would this look if we were comparing two tests to one another? Descriptively, if you gave me two tests, what I would love to see is one of them having its rock curve above the other, and I would just be so tempted, descriptively, to say that, oh, that is the better test. It has the higher area under the curve. It is always superior. But that's kind of like saying, hey, this sample has a higher mean than that sample. We don't know anything about the uncertainty in this. If area under the curve has some standard error associated with it, if everything that we're talking about here has some standard error, some noise associated with it, then when we want to make comparisons between two instruments, we have to take that uncertainty into account. The significance tests that we have here are sort of as we might expect. We have an AUC of one curve with standard error. We have an AUC of the other curve with a standard error. So we could construct a significance test of the difference between the two AUCs. And that might be a meaningful activity. As long as one of those curves is ever so beautifully superior to the other one, what happens if those two curves actually cross each other? Mm. That means that at some points, at least descriptively, the test that was superior at some cut points is now inferior at other cut points. And it really starts to undermine the idea of even doing a statistical comparison of the two AUCs. And so now we get into this weird position of regions where one test might be better than the other, right? And significance tests that are more local or partial AUC kinds of tests. The rabbit hole is deep on this one, and it's all really, really cool because there's uncertainty everywhere in this inference. What I particularly like about it is the inherent subjectivity of the decisions that you make. So I really like your description of having the two screeners. Again, imagine that you're living out in the real world. You are trying to identify the optimal screening device to use in your clinic. Maybe there are three screeners Mm -hmm. that you have available to you, and you want to know of these three, which is optimal that you would select for use in your clinic. It's an easier decision if all three screeners, say, have the same cost. They're all paper and pencil. They're all about a dozen items long, whatever it might be. But you might have a screener that is superior in terms of area under the curve relative to the other two options. But because of how that's done, it's a much higher cost. Mm. Maybe it takes more time. Maybe there's greater parent burden in reporting on the child. Maybe it won the race in terms of area under the curve, but you might not choose it because it's not a just noticeable difference beyond your other option, given these downstream costs of the screener itself. I just really love it because it's this nice balance of bringing a beautiful, statistical, mathematical, probabilistic architecture to understanding these things. But that at the end of the day, my buddy has to make a decision. Do I shut down the engine or not shut down the engine? Because this little $1 red light is flashing on and off. I never ask if I can punch you. I want to try this drunken punch thing. Can I try the drunken punch thing? I mean, it's kind of childish, but if it makes you happy, sure. (laughs) 
So for all the things that you say about how one test might be a little bit better, but not worth the added expense associated with it, Mm -hmm. we haven't even taken into account the fact that one instrument might be better for some people. Uh, ah, right? Yeah. yeah there you this are. This bothers me. Mm-hmm. Uncharacteristically, I did some preparation for this episode, and I read up on a number of these things just so I could pretend to know about this stuff. Not one person in one sentence of one paper used the word moderator. And it just screams moderator, right? The idea that somehow there is context. If we even think about the airplanes, there might be one type of diagnostic that is better in low humidity than than high humidity. If we're talking about diagnostics that are more clinical, it might be that one instrument is better for kids within a certain age range. There might be one instrument that is better for kids who are biological male versus biological female, but that never gets taken into account. And this area seems ripe for discussions about moderators and not just one moderator, but cocktails of moderators, right? So all the things that we've talked about before where the punchline is, it depends, this so depends. Greg described a rock curve with two curves for two different screeners. Mm -hmm. Have exactly that plot, but have one curve for children and one curve for adults on the same screener. And you could evaluate, is there a significant difference between the area under the curve as a function of this moderator? But then as Greg also alluded to, you could build this out to having multiple moderators. Mm -hmm. Sometimes in these discussions, we talk about dissertations we'd like to see. This would be a really interesting one, is how to use some of the recent developments in parameter moderation to build a model that could allow for not only categorical differences of moderators, but across a continuum. I gave an example of children and adults. Well, you would really want to look across continuous chronological age. As Greg said, it's not that people haven't talked about this or thought about it, but to my knowledge, nobody has really pounded nails into the floor that is set down. Here is how you would approach rock analysis by incorporating one or more moderators. And on that day... Mnol Rock was born. Moderated non-linear <laughs> receiver operating characteristic curves. I'm going to add this to the list of why people hate us. <laughs> so if we circle back to something that we said a long time ago, don't dichotomize variables. But <laughs> <laughs> Unless you do. <laughs> Unless you do. <laughs> um, which is the take-home message of this. No, because continuous information often has to translate into actionable things, right? Decisions, yes, no, admit, don't admit, label, don't label. This is a really well thought out technique for trying to do that. We want to make sure that people had some exposure to it because I have found it much less common in the social science world than I have in some of the more epidemiological worlds. And of course, in my vast reading of the World War II literature. I think it looks much more complicated than it actually is. Sure. One of the punchlines we have is if you work in this area, if you even think in this way, is there a cut point on a continuum that in some way indicates the probabilistic presence or absence of something else? Because Greg joked about don't dichotomize. We're actually not really doing that, right? (laughs) We're not dropping a cut point and then making a new variable zero one. These are probabilistic inferences about the likelihood of an unknown condition. This is a really neat way of doing it. And when I opened up the literature the first time, I thought it was going to be confusing. I thought it was going to be hard. It was like, oh my gosh, there are these areas. There are these empirical curves and parametric curves. It's actually really straightforward when you think about these probabilities. We're playing Where's Waldo, right? All of statistics is Where's Waldo. (laughs) We've talked about this before. There's some unknown condition that exists or doesn't exist, and you're trying to make a probabilistic guess as to, based on this score, does this person have or not have the condition? And whether the condition be a diagnosis, whether it be a need for remedial tutoring, whether you're going to scramble the spitfires to send against a potential enemy, this is a mechanism of mapping this continuum onto the probabilistic existence of a condition. I think it's a really powerful method that we could use much more than we do. So we hope that people will now be able to rock around the clock or rock this town or rock me gently or... 
So this is how you prepared for the episode. I read the Rock Curve papers and you Googled songs with rock in them. We will, we will rock you. (laughs) Bye-bye, everybody. (laughs) Thanks so much for joining us. Don't forget to tell your friends to subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever they go for something fun to listen to to distract them from whatever warning lights are going off in their lives. You can also follow us on Twitter, or whatever it's called now, where we are at QuantitudePod, and visit our website, QuantitudePod.org, where you can leave us a message, find organized playlists and show notes and syllabi, listen to past episodes, and other fun stuff. And finally, you can get cool Quantitude merch, like shirts, mugs, stickers, and spiral notebooks, just in time for back to school, from Redbubble.com, where all proceeds from non-bootleg authorized merch go to DonorsChoose.org to help support low-income schools. You've been listening to Quantitude, the podcast you wish had a gain knob so you could turn up the signal and turn down the noise. Today's episode has been sponsored by... Excuse me, Greg. Dwayne Johnson? The Rock? I'm so sorry to interrupt, but can I just say, huge fan. Huge. Really? Oh my goodness, yes. I've listened to all 125 episodes of Quantitude, well, 126 now, and you guys are totally my go-to when I'm working out for a new movie role. Are you serious? Absolutely. See these abs? Got these tightened up listening to season three. Just the sound of Patrick's voice makes this eight-pack just pop. Wow, that is so cool. What about my voice? Does my voice make anything tighten up? No, not really. Oh, okay. Don't worry, though. The rock doesn't take you for granite. Get it? Yeah, (laughs) I get it. In fact, both you and Patrick hold a place in my heart. You're of sedimental value. Uh, Okay. Maybe we could all work on a pebblecation together. Get it? Wow. First episode of season five, and we have already hit rock bottom. Ha! Very funny. I love it. This is most definitely not NPR. So it's common knowledge that the majority of my friends are made up. I started thinking people are going to suspect that my buddy Barry was made up. So I walked down the street, grabbed him, and brought him up. I would like to introduce Barry to tell the F-14 story himself. Thanks, Patrick. I am actually not a paid actor. I did fly (laughs) F-14s in the Navy. Patrick told me that he told a little story that I had relayed to him, and so I thought I'd tell the real version of it just to make sure he wasn't being a little too exaggerating on how the story went. So what happened was back in the 90s, we had a situation where we had a rash of engine fires and situations where air crew had to eject out of F-14s. The engineers back in Patuxent River discovered that there was a problem with the oil tank overpressurizing and blowing oil out through the jet engine and catching on fire. So their fix was to send us a little light and a bunch of wire and a switch. And the switch told us if that pressure was too high and when that pressure got too high, you were going to blow up. So Patrick wasn't actually being hyperbolic. There were situations where the airplane caught fire and the air crew ejected right as it was blowing up in midair. So that's a bad thing. We typically say blowing up is a bad thing. So (laughs) Patrick also was correct that uh, in my 25-year career, you're not supposed to blow up. But as I understand the topic of conversation for this podcast, there are situations where you have something that you think you need to follow. In this case, the light comes on, I might blow up. What should I do? I should shut the engine off because that will keep me from blowing up. But in the Navy, you land on aircraft carriers, and that's why older Navy airplanes had two engines, because of reliability issues. Having two engines is better than one. And when you shut down one of those engines, you've now created an emergency situation for yourself. By honoring the light, we were creating an emergency and adding a new element of risk, which was landing on the carrier with only one engine. So we had the choice of blowing up or landing on the carrier with single engine. We learned after a time that there was a problem with the wiring that was sent out that would get hot and it would cause a false warning. And so we started being in a situation where we would shut down the engine, let it cool down, wait till we were about to land, and we'd start the engine up. And if the light didn't come back on, we could land single engine with one engine at idle. But that's a big deal when you're landing a carrier plane, because if you need to wave off or bolter, as we call it, if you'd miss the wire, you can use both engines and safely fly away. We mitigated the risk of blowing up by using the engine at idle, but it did present a dilemma of the false positive versus the false negative, which I think is the learning point of this podcast. I think the main point of Barry's story is that my friend was not imaginary and I was not hyperbolic. (laughs) Barry, thank you so much. That is perfect. I will return your leaf blower soon. I promise. (laughs) Okay. Thanks, everybody. All right. Bye-bye, everybody. Oh, and by the way, I'm really impressed that you jog every other day, Patrick. I mean, you know, it's not Top Gun or anything.